Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our NCAA tournament recap of the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, and we're also going to preview the Final Four. Jalen, let's just get right into it because... Again, a lot has happened so far in the Sweet 16 and in the Elite Eight. We had a huge upset in the Sweet 16. So let's kick things off with that. The St. Peter's upset as they beat Purdue. Yeah, so um, pretty much the way we're going to do this in comparison to how we did the the round of 64 and the round of 32 is instead of trying to focus on every other little individual matchup within each region and everything else, as the field narrows, we're going to try to focus on more of the bigger storylines And of course, St. Peter's beating Purdue, but also falling to North Carolina has to be one of the bigger storylines of the past weekend. Right. So the Peacocks became the first ever 15th seed in the NCAA to reach the Elite Eight. They beat Purdue on what nobody knew until the day of was National Peacock Day of all things. Doug Edert for them, uh, one of the guards for the Peacocks, has become a household name. Um, in NCAA, in NCAA lore, as many other players kind of who burst onto the scene under this tournament sphere tend to do. And actually got an NIL deal out of it, which is huge as well. I think it was from like Buffalo Wild Wings or something like that. And um, the biggest thing for me, man, is just that like this is another special reason why the NCAA tournament means so much, not just to college basketball, but specifically to these college athletes in particular, because these small schools, these um, mid-major programs that don't get a lot of attention on a national media uh, basis or even on like a day-to-day coverage basis, this is the opportunity where the further you get along the tournament, the more you stay within the conversation. And for the Peacocks, they put themselves in a really solid position because this is a Jersey school filled with Jersey guys who got the job done, and although it came short, right, falling to North Carolina in the manner that they did, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, falling in the way that they did, it shouldn't diminish the journey they've they've been on, right? I mean, as part of this, they took down Murray State, who arguably is probably the most accomplished mid-major to date in terms of success in the NCAA tournament, and they won by 10 points in convincing fashion, and um, I think that was just kind of the beginning of what we thought was going to be a really epic Cinderella story. I mean, I think getting past the first round was enough to speak on, uh, talking about who they took down in Kentucky. But I think following that up with the Murray State victory is actually what really took things over the top. And I want to get your thoughts on St. Peter's run before I kind of talk about the North Carolina game and even some of the stuff that happened leading up to that game. Um, just your thoughts on this team, because, I mean, you know, we don't see this every day, obviously. First of all, Doug, Doug Eater, tournament legend, he had some great performances in the first two games. Didn't shoot the ball particularly well in the game against Purdue. He had 10 points, got most of his points at the free throw line. But the fact of the matter is that they took advantage of a Purdue team that a lot of people had high expectations for to possibly reach the national championship. And this is a Purdue team that ended up turning the ball over 15 times in this game. 
six turnovers for Jaden Ivey, five for Zach Ed. I think St. Peter's defense knew how to contain Jaden Ivey. He shot four of 12 from the field, one of six from three. I think the defense just did a great job doing what they needed to do. And Jalen, we talked about this in our last college basketball episode. Which St. Peter's team were we going to get in this in this game? Were we going to get the strong offensive team that we saw against Kentucky or the strong defensive team that we saw against Murray State? I think it's safe to say we got the defensive team with how good they were able to play on defense against Purdue. With that being said, the game against North Carolina, Jalen, they just seemed outmatched. And I think they... I think we knew the Cinderella run was going to come to an end, but we almost didn't want it to end because this is the first 15 seed ever to reach the Elite Eight. This was something that neither Florida Gulf Coast nor Oral Roberts, neither of those teams reached the Elite Eight. St. Peter's can take that claim. St. Peter's can take the claim that they knocked down Kentucky, uh, a blue blood program, Murray State, one of the best teams in the country. They were undefeated in in, uh, conference play. And Purdue, a team that had a lot of high hopes going into this season as a national championship contender. So I don't think there should be any negative takeaways from this. I think, if anything, it's it's only positive takeaways for this program. I think it's, it's it's only upward and onward for this program. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of build upon that, too, you talk about the pathway that they that they went right again, Murray State, one of the more notable mid-major programs, Kentucky and Purdue, both teams that probably have at least I want to say at least one, probably two, maybe three potential draft picks on each of the given teams um, a piece. So you ran into about six potential NBA prospects along the way. Um also, Bouye for uh, for Murray State as well, or for San Francisco, he was another guy who he had. To, I mean, he played his heart out against Murray State, and that was another guy who they they actually I would say dodged essentially by taking on Murray State instead. Um, and then you look at the way that it happened. So I kind of wrote this down as one of those things. Daryl Banks was the hero, obviously, for the Purdue game. He was a guy who knocked down two back to back jumpers, one to put them, um, one to tie the game, fifty seven fifty seven. And then the other one to put them up 59 to 57 with two minutes left, basically. And from that point on, it turned into a free throw shooting contest. And it was the Peacocks who were able to pull the win out. I think the most notable thing when you talk about the defensive uh, viability of the Peacocks in this Purdue game, particularly, the fact that they were able to hold Purdue to 5 of 21 from three is is really huge. Holding them to less than 45% shooting from the floor, also a really big one. I think. The main thing when I look at this Peacocks team is they are also not just because of how far they got, but the way they got it. They are also going to be much more remembered than some of the lower seeds that we've seen get big time victories. Right. We've seen Florida Gulf Coast make a long run. We've seen the Wichita states of the world make make uh, historical runs. We've, we even locally saw UMBC take down Virginia. And that almost feels like an afterthought now in the lore of NCAA basketball, just because this Peacocks team did what they did in the manner that they did. Obviously them also, this was an interesting point I heard on a podcast, them being called the Peacocks actually helps them in terms of resting in this lore as well. It's such an interesting 
mascot amongst, you know, if they were another Tigers team or another Wildcats team, right? Would it stick the way that it does with them being the Peacocks, who essentially overnight got their own emoji, for, for God's sake? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of influence that this college basketball run has had. Now, I want to bring something up that I thought was really interesting when I was doing research for this, and it's that this run came to such an abrupt ending, right, with the way they lost to North Carolina. And as a Carolina fan, obviously, you love to see it. But something that I noticed was the Peacocks won their first three tournament games by a combined 19 points, and they lost to UNC by 20. I think, I don't know if that's more of an indictment on the teams they faced prior or more so catering to the fact that UNC was just that much more uh, dominant and much more, more, much more physically present than St. Peter's was, uh, especially with the fact that Armando Pay got put on a 20 and 22. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about UNC a little bit more in depth. But to kind of piggyback on top of that, Something that also stuck out to me was that Shaheen Holloway, shout out to Coach Shaheen Holloway for the Peacocks. He literally, the news for him getting the Seton Hall job, who he used to be a player for them, obviously he's been rumored as a potential head coach for them for a little while now. The news for that basically dropped as soon as the game was over. And we've seen this in the past, actually throughout this this very tournament, where guys who are on the coaching carousel seem to be in a, in a, in a, um, out of one room, excuse me, and into another one simply by the end of their tournament. So, so Ryan, I know we can't get into the minds of the players, but I do wonder from your perspective, do you think that that had anything to do with the influence, with, with the outcome of this game? Do you think this had, did you think that news had any influence on this game? Because for them to have played so hard in those three games and lose in the ma- in the manner that they did and then have that news come out after. I don't want to say something smells fishy about that, but it does bring cause to pause when you think about the level of competitiveness they've been able to provide against teams that, you know, again, I'm a UNC fan, but I would argue that Kentucky and Purdue are at least a bit more talented than the Tar Heels, yet the Tar Heels were able to dominate them in that fashion. That's the tough thing, Jalen, because I don't know if this is a a yes or a no type of answer because we don't know what goes on behind the scenes when the game is over. We knew regardless, Shaheen Holloway was going to get a big-time coaching job, and we knew at some point he was going to leave. And I think the Purdue win solidified that, okay, I think he can really coach – with, right. with the big-time teams in the NCAA. So for him to take the job at Seton Hall, I think, is great. The manner in which he did it is one that I do agree with you. I think it was a little bit – it was a little bit suspicious because of how quickly it happened. Let's go to um, Matt McMahon, former Murray State coach. Mm-hmm. A day after they lose – in the second round to St. Peter's news comes out that Mac McMahon is the new LSU coach. Right. And then there's actually news that broke today that justice Hill, former player for Murray state just transferred to LSU. 
I mean, I think the I don't want to say that Shaheen Holloway's focus wasn't there. I don't want to put it there. If you yeah. listen to his if you listen to his post game press conferences, he was focused on the here and now of winning with this basketball team. What I mean so more more so is like I don't necessarily blame him. I don't blame the news. I don't necessarily blame the circumstances of him accepting the job. I think it's more so what I'm saying is all of the national media attention focusing on Shaheen Holloway was around this idea that he was waiting in the winds for this Seton Hall job. And whether we believe it or not, we know players hear things. Everybody has TV. Everybody has access to YouTube. Everybody hears radio. And this buzz only continued to pick up as they continued to win games. And so with that being the case, that noise only gets louder. And it comes to a point where I do I would I would understand the idea that it gets a little difficult to watch as your own coach is being discussed about his next potential um journey while you're currently on what you would consider as a player the journey of your life and I do think maybe that has some kind of influence again can't go into the psych uh, the psychology of the players but it's hard to discount that as well I think the other thing that we have to take into consideration though too is this affects team chemistry and this affects team morale. When players hear this type of news, let's kind of transition to the NBA in that aspect. What happened when the Lakers were trying to trade for Anthony Davis in, in 2018, 20, in the 2018-2019 season? You heard all these trade packages that these, these younger players, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, they were all in trade packages. They were all hearing their names getting thrown out. I think that affects a player's mindset going into games because does your team want you? Does your coach want you? I think that's obviously like something they consider. I think in the mind of Shaheen Holloway, he was definitely focused on trying to make a run at the national championship with a 15 seed of all teams. But then afterward, when, you know, the final whistle sounds against North Carolina, that's when he probably thought about his future. And, you know, does he want to go to his alma mater and coach there? And I think that was a decision that he had to make. And it's an understandable decision because who wouldn't want to coach their alma mater? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big point, too. I mean, overall, you know, commend definitely have to commend St. Peter's run they were easily, easily the number one reason why everybody's brackets were busted by the end of the first weekend. No doubt in my mind. There couldn't have been many people who were leaning on the Peacocks to get it done against the Wildcats and continue to move on from there. So shout out to them for single-handedly <laughs> busting everybody's bracket over the weekend, over that first weekend, which really goes a long way. But I'll tell you something that probably really busted some brackets in these later rounds we got to move on to the fact that gonzaga and arizona both fell in the sweet 16 bro so obviously we got to start with the fact that gonzaga fell to arkansas 74 to 68 um we'll get to arizona in a second because man let me tell you crazy stuff with this one this was one of those where i felt like we felt pretty confident in both of those teams when we did our preview for the sweet 16 and instead, um, we were not handed the uh, we were not handed the easy dub we expected. 
Um, so with that being the case, Ryan, let's start with Gonzaga. Drew Timmy finished with the uh finished the game with 25.7 rebounds, three assists. Chet Holmgren fouled out, but he did have 11 points and 14 rebounds. What are our thoughts on Gonzaga as this season comes to an end, the circumstances of the way they lost? And I think another thing worth discussing, too, is whether or not I've heard this conversation come up a lot. So I want to get your thoughts on it, whether or not Gonzaga as a program should be permitted to be a number one overall seed or a number one seed in the NCAA tournament moving forward. I think this is a tricky conversation with how successful they've been in years past, but I do also think it's an interesting conversation to have. So to start with the game, the one thing that I predicted and it came true was that Chet Holmgren was going to foul out of this game. The one thing that Arkansas did well was that they kept they kept attacking Chet Holmgren down low, and he ended up fouling out of the game. So that happened, but I think you have to also you have to look at how he fouled out too. Jalen, I said this in the last episode. I'm gonna say it again. I'm not a basketball official here, but those last two calls on Chet Holmgren, mm-hmm. I don't know about that. I don't know, because especially the last one that got him fouled out because it seemed like he didn't make a lot of contact with J.D. Nate, who was driving driving baseline to the rim. And the referee said, that's a foul on Holmgren. And I was like, oh, I was like, OK, well, that that's it. I don't know about that, but <laughs> that's it for Chet Holmgren. 11 points, 14 rebounds, five of nine shooting from the field, two blocks. I would think that he declares for the NBA draft at some point. Mm. I, I think that's the mindset. But you you look at the rest of the, the team outside of Drew Timmy, Julian Schrouder struggled, Rasir Bolton struggled, Andrew Nemhart struggled. Neither of them shot very well from the field at all. But you talk about the idea of the, the overall seed. I think the big thing for Gonzaga is that it's hurt them being the number one overall seed. You talk about last championship or last year, national championship, they lose to Baylor. The last time that they were a number one overall seed overall, they haven't had the best luck. I mean, you go back to 2013, they lose to Wichita State in the second round. So I think being a number one overall seed and a number one seed in general has been hurting Gonzaga more than helping them. I think there's a really interesting point when you talk about the idea of it hurting them. I'm not, I think the argument should be made that I don't think maybe they should be treated similarly as some of the other mid majors that get disrespectfully, you know, miss misseeded. Right. And we saw that a lot during this tournament in terms of teams that seem to be awkwardly seated as in comparison to their actual season success. Um, but if you just look at their overall history, it seems like there's been this team has been favored for favored with top seeds over the last four to five seasons in particular. And outside of their early season stretches in terms of, yes, having really significant out of conference schedule. 
they spend the better half of three to four months beating up on significantly lower competition, We, I would argue, right? Obviously, you have St. Mary's and you have BYU, but beyond that, the WCC is not relatively known for getting significant, you know, depth in the NCAA tournament. There's, there's most tournaments where they're lucky to get two, yet... Not only is not only is Gonzaga getting in, but they're getting in as a number one overall seed with arguably one of the weaker strengths of schedule in the latter half of the season when things are actually during during in conference play when things are actually the most frequent to change, right? But let's go through it. 2008 losing the first round to Davidson. 09 losing the regional uh, the regional semifinals. 2010, losing the second round. 2011, second round. 12, second round. 13, second round. 14, second round, right? Okay, we start getting into more recent memory. So that's that right there is already six years in recent memory of being taken out in as late as the regional semifinal in 2009 with my, when my Carolina Tar Heels took them down by 21. But outside of that, they either lost in the first or second round. Then you get to 2015, regional final, lose to Duke. 2016, regional semifinal. 2017, that's obviously the run that they made to the national championship. My North Carolina Tar Heels got the job done in that that game and got the victory. 2018, regional semifinal. 2019, uh, regional final, lost to Texas Tech. And then obviously most recently, 2021, losing in the national championship game to Baylor. There's just, with them not having a championship, and yes, I understand two national championship uh, champion uh, championship appearances in the last four seasons. I understand that. Excuse me. But they don't necessarily have the longevity um, excuse or the lo- longevity point to argue themselves as being a number one seed on a season-to-season basis. We understand that they're always going to end out with a relatively dominant record. We understand that they are going to play much better out-of-conference talent than some of the other teams in the WCC, obviously. But I kind of agree with you. I do think it has hurt their pathway to a certain extent. But I would also argue that they might not actually be very deserving of being a number one overall seed on a season-to-season basis, given they don't have a, a, a real track record of being a team that is dominant on a postseason-to-postseason basis, and the only time they show dominance tends to specifically be within their own conference. Now, they have one out-of-conference game as well. We we note the, uh, the, uh, the Texas game earlier in the season. That doesn't even look that great anymore and stuff like that. But yeah, I think you have a good point about that hurting their pathway. Um, do you have any other final thoughts on Gonzaga before we move to Arizona, who also was just as shocking? I just thought that that was an interesting conversation that has been brought up as of late, and it does really make you wonder. Gonzaga is extremely talented. They are going to continue to have really solid recruiting classes on a year-to-year basis. But one has to wonder, as long as they are in the WCC, are they ever going to truly be worthy of being a number one overall seed or is it simply paper pencil to paper and data metrics that are speaking to why this team is the number one seed without actually truly being 
uh, deserving of of being slotted that way. The thing is, Jalen, and I mean, you look at those non-conference games that they've played. They've played UCLA. They played Duke. They played Texas. They played Alabama. They played Texas Tech. I think if they didn't have a strong non-conference schedule, they wouldn't be in the position that they were in for the past couple of seasons. Mm. The thing is, the, the conference that they currently play in, I think the best thing that they can do is have three teams get into the tournament. Much like this season, you had three teams get in. You had Gonzaga, you had San Francisco, and you had uh, St. Mary's. Jalen, I think it might be time for this team to move to the Pac-12. Interesting. I think that's a really interesting point to bring up is the idea that if they're going to truly solidify themselves as a quote-unquote dominant team within college basketball, they have to do it within a bigger a bigger framework of a in-conference schedule. I think that's a really great point, man. I don't necessarily know how they would go about doing so. Um, and it would be interesting to see how the WCC fares after that, because I feel like without Gonzaga, the WCC would be viewed as a, I mean, I would argue it would be viewed as a MAC or a MEAC level, or maybe a little bit higher than that, like an A-10 level conference at face value. I'll give it about like an A-10, a sun level value as a conference when you take Gonzaga out. But for Gonzaga, now look, they don't have to do anything they don't want to because they've been able to receive these number one overall seeds and these number one seeds in general without moving conferences. So clearly the committees believe that their talent shows regardless of what their competition on a day-to-day basis is. But if they truly want to be worthy in the eyes of the public, that is an interesting point, is the idea of moving to somewhere like the Pac-12. I think that's a really good point to table. That might be something we might need to discuss a little bit further um, in a in a later offseason podcast or something, or like maybe like when we preview next season. Because I think that's a really interesting point. Because Gonzaga is in a situation where they are always going to come off as underachievers strictly out of the fact that they are seated as highly as they are, despite the fact that on a season-to-season basis, they probably only have about four to five wins in total that truly are gravitating in a way that makes you believe in them as a powerhouse team within the WCC. Outside of that, you could argue that just being in the Big Ten alone, you can win. You have 10 potential big-time matchups that are, you know, future sway, uh, swaying in terms of what your future could look like on any given season. We saw that for Rutgers, for example, right? Just Rutgers. Rutgers had one and a, basically a week-and-a-half stretch, and they went from being a team nobody was talking about to a team that ended up making the, the first four in. You know what I mean? So I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I'm going to let you finish up on it. Uh, um, anything else you want to say about Gonzaga, and then we'll switch over to Arizona. Yeah, I just I think the big thing for Gonzaga, this is just another tough loss. A really talented team this year. I think there's going to be some questions about what other players end up declaring for the NBA draft. I think Drew Timmy could be a guy that inserts his name. There's a chance that Andrew Nemhard could be next. But 
I'm just really interested to see what the mindset is of Mark Few going into next season because this is another season where they don't reach the national championship at all. And I think you have to wonder, like, what is Gonzaga doing wrong that's causing them to miss the national championship so much with so many talented teams and so many talented players that have passed through this program? You have to wonder why they haven't had a national championship. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good question to ask. Um, Something, too, that we have to talk about when we talk about Arizona Arizona is a team. Christian Braun mocked in the first round. Uh, Benedict Ben uh, Ben Matherin is mocked as a top ten guy. Uh, Christian Coloco is another guy who's being discussed in terms of being um, in the the NBA picture in terms of a as a potential prospect. Um, and they fell to Houston, a Houston team that is extremely undermanned, and a, a Houston team that we'll talk about a little bit later. Honestly, probably deserved to beat Villanova as well with the way they played. And in the matchup against Houston, Jamal Sheed for Houston dropped 21 points. Kyler Edwards dropped 19. And it was pretty much Dalen Terry and Benedict Matherin that kept this game even remotely as close as they did, combining for uh, 32 points. What what are your thoughts, man, on this Arizona team? Because I felt like this season, with overtaking UCLA as the talk of the town in the Pac-12, being in a situation where, honestly, I felt like they had the best break in terms of number one overall, one number one seeds in terms of their pathway to the Final Four. And the talent is clearly there. Um, I think Dalen Terry is going to be a real player for them next season if he if he chooses to stick around. What are your thoughts on this Arizona team in terms of their season and the way they fell? Because, you know, we're down to, you know, one <laughs> number one seed left. We'll talk about Kansas a little bit later in this podcast as well, but we're down to one number one seed left. And Arizona was, if anybody, I think was going to be the remaining number one seed going into the final four. I think we probably all thought it was going to be Arizona. This game shocked me more than the Gonzaga loss because I was not expecting 60 points from Arizona, a team that scored 95 in the last game against TCU. Granted, they went to overtime, but this team was still able to knock down shots when it counted. Ben Matherin and Christian Coloco, they did not have the best game. 15 points, like you mentioned earlier, for Matherin, 4 of 14 shooting from the field, 2 of 7 from 3. Coloco, 10 points, 2 of 6 shooting from the field. Did knock down 6 free throws, so I thought that was huge. I think that we needed a big game. We, we needed a big game for both those guys. And Houston doesn't get enough credit for how great of a defensive team they are. And... I think with how they were able to shut down Christian Coloco in the paint where he was not as much of an offensive presence as he was in the first two games, I think that's very I think I think that's something that we have to credit Houston for. Ben Matherin, four of fourteen, he took the most shots on the team, but he struggled to find those looks. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the fact that this is a Houston team that 
is still without two of their best players. Marcus Sasser, Tremont Mark, they were out for the season. I think those were two huge losses to this Houston program. But you also have to credit a coach like Kelvin Sampson. He was able to lead this team and overcome those injuries to make the tournament. And when everybody thought they were going to lose in the first round to UAB, they end up getting to the Elite Eight with, with a lot of huge wins. And this one definitely takes the cake. For sure. Beating a number one seed in Arizona that has a lot of talent, a team that had national championship aspirations, I think that's that's a huge win for your season. But for Arizona, I think there's definitely a future. What a season, though. What a first season for Tommy Lloyd. You know, 33 and four, you were number two in the country. Even though you lost in this week 16, I don't know if anybody had this type of expectation for Arizona before the season started. Mm, I think that's a great point. Talking about how they entered the year and where they ended up. I definitely think you can't poo-poo Arizona's season in the way that we were able to kind of go in and question Gonzaga's season and how it ended. I definitely think that this is a building block for Arizona with the new direction for the program. There definitely might there there definitely is a chance they're going to lose at least three of their big name guys in this upcoming draft class, especially because this is a this is a weaker draft. So I could see uh, a handful of these guys. Tubelis even maybe taking a good look. At the, at the draft, uh, Coloco, like I mentioned earlier, Matherin, uh, Dalen Terry, if he wants to express, if he wants to uh, engage with it, maybe to give it a test run and maybe still come back to school after getting some feedback. But I think Dalen Terry is going to be an interesting building block for them moving forward if he does stick around. Um, speaking of Houston losing in the Sweet 16, right? Um, uh, I mean, excuse me, not in the Sweet 16, in the Elite Eight, that was to Villanova. And Villanova is a really interesting ball club because during this postseason, they've kind of just gotten it done, right? They've not, they haven't done really anything particular that jumps out of the page at you. And they're coming off of a win against Houston where they were pretty much outplayed. I mean, if you watch the game front to back, they were pretty much outplayed. And essentially, in a weird way, Houston pulled a Houston. First, it was the Rockets. And now it was the Houston Cougars who go one of 20 from three-point line, from the from the three-point line. And that pretty much is the difference in the ballgame, similar to how the Rockets played up against um, the Golden State Warriors and essentially shooting three for whatever I think it was from beyond the arc was what sold them that game. And that's exactly what happened with the Houston Cougars as well. Otherwise, Villanova probably loses this game. Um, and then something else that, Led, I noticed, Ryan, and this was an interesting like little pattern that picked up. The Wildcats throughout this tournament beat Ohio State by 10, Michigan by 8, and Houston by 6. So by nature, these pa- the, the pattern shows that these games are only getting closer, as expected, as the competition gets more and more difficult and the stakes are raised, of course. But these games are actually getting closer I would argue Colin Gillespie hasn't had a great postseason so far, and they just lost Justin Moore to a torn Achilles. So it feels safe to say that the Wildcats have been getting along through the skin of their teeth throughout this, this entire tourney, this entire tourney. And that goes to wonder, 
we'll talk. We're gonna preview the game against Kansas a little bit later. But like, with all of that being said, like, what is your confidence factor in this team? Because at the end of the day, this is still Villanova by nature. You know what I mean? By name alone, if anything else, this is still Villanova, a team that 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 is well that that executes well plays with a lot of energy is very fundamentally sound and that doesn't really change regardless of the way they win these games. I will say this because I think this is an interesting thing to point out. The last two times that Villanova has made the final four, they won the national championship 2016 and 2018. Hmm. With that being the case, losing Justin Moore hurts. And I think this is a bigger loss because of his impact on the floor. This is a, a player who can create his own shot. He's a solid perimeter defender. He can shoot the three. He shot 36% from three this season. This is now an issue where a team in Villanova who does not have that strong of a rotation outside of their starting five now has to turn to their bench. They only play six guys a game, Jalen, and – uh, Caleb Daniels, who got the most minutes, um, he played 35 minutes against Houston. He's now going to have to fill Justin Moore's role. And where does that leave guys on the bench? Because now I think Jay Wright's going to have to turn to more players on the bench. I think Archie Diakono is going to get more minutes now for Villanova because of the fact that Justin Moore is out and Caleb Daniels is going to be inserted into the lineup. Now, I think the one thing that we have to kind of credit Villanova for, you know, they're a strong team on both sides of the floor or on both sides of the ball. They are the best free throw shooting team in the country. So when they get to the line, you know, they're going to knock it down. I think you have to give them a fighting chance against Kansas because this is a Nova team that even though they're without Justin Moore, I think you have to expect that Colin Gillespie is going to have one of his best college games against Kansas. Mm. You would have to expect somebody from Villanova's bench to step up. And I think with the stakes being so high and this being the blue blood final four, right? essentially <laughs> – you would think that somebody has to step up. And Justin Moore going down, it hurts, but now you have to look and see who's going to take over. Yeah, I think that's a great point. When we preview that matchup, I'll get into who I think that could be a little bit more just from news that I've seen and different things to take into account when you talk about losing a guy like Justin Moore because, like you mentioned beforehand, 6'4", 210 pounds, a guy who averages double figures for them is a solid perimeter defender and gives them size. Obviously, going to Chris Archie Diakono pulls back on that a little bit. Um, not too, too much, but it does it does take a little bit of the physicality on the wing away, um, and that's something to take into account. Um, for Villanova overall, though, my biggest thing with them is just that they are, are, they are truly a persevering uh, ball, ball club right now, right? And they are everything that Houston want, want it to be in terms of making this kind of run. But now they're just facing the music a lot later in this run. And I wonder if that alone, right, the demoralizing loss of a big-time player like Justin Moore, DMV guy, by the way, too, 
losing a guy like that at this juncture of the tournament, if that's something that actually zaps the uh, the fight out of this team. And I don't think that a that a Jay Wright team will come out underwhelmed, but I do think it's still something worth keeping into account considering the fact that this happened when it happened. And again, like you mentioned, a blue blood tournament basically left over and all the chips are at the middle of the table and it's going to come down to basically resolve, I think, more than anything for these teams. Um, and I think that's a great way to transition to this next one. And I'm going to try not to take over this part of the the, the podcast too, too much. But the, another big storyline as we get close to rounding out our top five storylines, our fourth biggest storyline is that Coach uh, Hubert Davis for um, North Carolina reaches the Final Four in his first season as a head coach, making him one of only like two players, I believe, that's reached the Final Four as a player and then gotten that same program to the Final Four as a coach. Ryan, we've said this on a handful of podcasts as we've gone throughout this tournament. I'm going to keep beating the drum on it. This was an ACC that we thought didn't even deserve four teams. Now two of them are squaring off against each other. Two of the most notable ones, by the way, are squaring off against each other in the Final Four. There were three of them in the Elite Eight. This North Carolina team, we openly said, was a first four-in team at best before they beat Duke at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Let me repeat that. This was a team that we thought was a first four-in squad before they beat Duke at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Since then, they have gotten... They, since then, let's talk strictly about the NCAA tournament. They've beaten every team by at least nine points. Two of them, they won by at least 20 or more. In each of those games, a different guy has led the team in scoring. Brady Manick had 28 against Marquette. R.J. Davis had 30 against Baylor. Caleb Love had 30 against UCLA. And as I mentioned earlier, Armando Baycott had 20 points and 22 rebounds against St. Peter's. So a different guy is featuring in all of these victories. They're winning in practically dominant fashion after being a team that, outside of that Duke win, pretty much was sleepwalking into this tournament, right? Losing early in the ACC tournament and being a team that might have been questioning their tournament mortality early on with the fact that Marquette was going to be no slouch and, of course, Baylor was next on the menu regardless, right? Even with the fact that I had a lot of optimism on them, I could see why that would be a little bit of a bad role if you find yourself in a situation facing Marquette and Baylor is your first two matchups in, in the opening weekend of in, opening week of the tournament. So, like, what are your thoughts on this UNC team now that we've seen the the journey that they've come on, and then also doing so under first uh, under a first year head coach who a lot of people believed in coming into the season, but a lot of people were also skeptical of. With the after the way UNC started the year, the one thing that we we wanted to see this year is how Caleb Love would transition from year one to year two. I definitely think he's had a pretty strong year two. I think that's a huge point to make because you combine that along with the play of RJ Davis, and he's been 
great for this team. You get Brady Manick in the transfer portal, who's one of the top three-point shooters on your team, and he's contributed to North Carolina's success as a strong three-point shooting team. North Carolina this season is shooting 30, I think they shoot 36% from three. Actually, yeah, 36.5% from three this season. So they're getting it done there. Let's also talk about the fact that this team ends up losing one of their transfer portal players in Dawson Garcia, who transferred from Marquette to UNC. You take that into consideration because I think between him and Armando Baycott, that could have been a really successful one-two punch in the front court. Mm -hmm. But speaking of Armando Baycott, wow, he's taking control. In this in this NCAA tournament, he had a twenty and twenty game against St. Peter's the other day. So you can see this team starting to grow into the North Carolina championship contender teams of the past. Mm. And even though the coaches and Roy Williams, you sense the feeling that this team is not going to go down without a fight, mm. and this team has the stage set for what could be the greatest college basketball game of all time with their game against Duke. I like to call it the final ride versus the first ride because mm. I definitely, I don't think Hubert Davis is, is done making final four appearances with this North Carolina team. I think there will be many final four appearances to come for this North Carolina program. And I even sense like a trend with, NCAA tournaments in general, where you have three top seeds and then there's the outlier. In this case, North Carolina is the outlier. They're the underdog. They're the eight seed. So I expect that this, this game between North Carolina and Duke will be very close, but we'll get to that preview um, in a moment. Yeah. And just to kind of touch on that Caleb Love point you made earlier, just so the audience understands what kind of progressions you're talking about, jumps from Last season, he had 10 and a half points, jumps up to 15.7 points this year. Um, he's averaging, he averaged 3.6 assists last year, 3.7 this year, 2.6 rebounds last year, 3.5 or uh, 3.4 rebounds this season. 80, the, the shooting percentage is where things really matter. 80.8% uh, percent from the free throw line last year, 86.4% this year. 26.6% from three last season up to 37.1% this year and 31.6% from the field up to 37.1% from the field. Now the 37.1% from the field thing is definitely still one of those things that's going to be a big critique for him, especially if he looks to um, make a run at the NBA level. But from a college perspective, the jumps that he's made have been a huge difference in not only his ability to coexist with RJ Davis this season, but is also, I would argue Caleb Love's rise this season was quite necessary with the fact that they've had a lack of presence in the front court outside of Armando Baycott. Going back to your point about losing Dawson Garcia, I think that's a very important factor is if you lose Dawson and you do not get this, this upgrade from Caleb Love, so to speak, within his game, where do the, where do the Tar Heels fall then? Right. Where do they end up then if you do not get this kind of solid point guard play 
from Caleb Love because in the backcourt, it gets very thin after that, right? Leaky Black doesn't have a lot of ball handling responsibilities. He's mainly on the floor as a wing defender. Um, You have interesting wing guys like Puff Johnson uh, on the team, but not a guy that you're going to put the ball in his hands to make, make decisions with. And you don't want to put the ball in R.J. Davis's hands to over decide for the team on a possession to possession basis. So obviously the the progression of Caleb Love was almost practically necessary in order for this team to be a legit contender in any any sense of the word, right? So I think that's a really important point that you make talking about the progression of Love in particular because I also think his his ability to shoot the 3 better this season or his uh, progression as becoming a better three-point shooter and being more of a threat from beyond the arc has also opened up a lot of game for a guy like Armando Baycott, who has been, as you noted earlier, killing it pretty much this entire NCAA tournament. Um, so I, I, I think that's a really great point that I'm glad you brought up because I think that the progression of Caleb Love is going to be one of those big storylines that we have to discuss at the end of the year when you talk about how far North Carolina has come and if they're the ones hosting up the championship trophy at the end, Caleb Love being taking this kind of leap in year two is going to have a lot to do with why that happened. So I think that's a great point. I can't wait to get to the preview a little bit later on because I think there's a lot of interesting points upon the matchups that we've already seen with Duke um, in North Carolina this season, as well as just what we've seen in this postseason that can really come to light um, in this matchup, which is very historical for a lot of reasons we'll get to it in a little bit did you have anything else you wanted to say about north carolina's run so far or do you want to move on to kansas who's our uh our last blue blood team to talk about before we get into the final four i think for north carolina the big thing on saturday is how can you recapture the magic that you had beating duke in coach k's final home game because it, it's, it has that big-time feel where you know there's going to be past alumni from Duke there. You know J.J. Reich's probably going to show up. <laughs> you know at North Carolina, you know Roy, Roy Williams is going to be there. He's been there for all their tournament games so far. I would think that it has this big-time feel, and you kind of wonder who from North Carolina is going to take advantage of it. I don't want to – you know, talk about, I, I don't want to keep bringing up like who's, who's going to step up because we, we all know who's going to step up. It could be anyone. It could be Brady Manic. It could be RJ Davis. It could be Styles coming off the bench, but it has that big time feel where you wonder who's going to take over. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And especially with this North Carolina team, like I mentioned earlier, they've had a different leading score every single game throughout this tournament. So it really does make you wonder who is going to be the one that shines brightest when the lights come on for this team, because whoever that is, is going to not only need to assert themselves in general, but they're going to need to assert themselves early and often against this Duke Blue Devils team. We'll get into that a little bit more specifically later, because I have some bigger points about this matchup, particularly between these two teams. But the last team, the last storyline that we want to talk about from the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16 is the Kansas Jayhawks. And Ryan, I typed this up in this manner because I want to get your perspective on Kansas 
from the perspective of being the sleeping giant. The way I the way I shared this topic was the Kansas Jayhawks might be the sleeping giant nobody is really talking about. Now, think about that for a second. They're a top two seed. They've got Oshai Abogji, who's obviously in the Naismith Player of the Year award race and is being discussed as an, as an NBA lottery pick. They are in an interesting set of circumstances where they are probably behind Duke, the most favored to win the championship now out of the Final Four, right? And they have a historically great coach in Bill Self, yet I phrased it as really not talking about. Now, let me explain why I phrased it that way, and then I want to get your thoughts on it, Ryan. I had to do some checking around. I listened to a couple podcasts and stuff and got this too, but this is really important. Kansas hasn't been ranked number one at all this entire year. Kansas has not been discussed as the best team in the country all year. Right? Yet. Yet. Here they are. As the only top seed left. Right? The only number one seed left to dance. And we're talking about a Kansas team that was down by six to Miami at halftime and then proceeded to blow them out by 26 points. Yet Duke is still favored over them to win the championship. I have no hate towards Duke, despite the fact that, yes, I am a UNC fan, so I I wish for their downfall. I have no hate towards them in this manner because I understand the talent that they have on their team. But it seems as though Kansas is becoming a bit of an afterthought in the storyline because of the pathway that they've taken to get this far. And I wonder if that is making us all forget just how solid this Kansas team actually is. So I want to get your thoughts on this Kansas team. They beat Crate, they beat Texas Southern, Creighton, I, I'd say my Providence team. <laughs> And then took down Miami, obviously, to get the get here. What are your thoughts on their pathway? What are your thoughts on them moving forward um, with how they played so far this tournament? I think Kansas is the most overlooked team in this NCAA tournament. Huh. Okay. And I think the reason why they're overlooked is because there's other things that are overshadowing how good this team is. You could talk about how good Gonzaga was before uh, the NCAA tournament and how they had championship aspirations. Arizona had championship aspirations. Baylor had championship aspirations. This is Duke's final season, or this is Duke. This is uh, Coach K's final season for Duke. Not a lot of people were talking about how good Kansas was, and I, I'll be honest, I was not. I was not sold on the idea that they were going to go to the final four. I thought Miami was going to win. And I thought that their defense was going to, I thought that their defense was going to hold it down. And Jalen, Kansas's offense, as they're one of the best offensive teams in the country, they showed out in that second half when they were down by six and they said, okay, we need to flip the switch now. And 
they ended up doing just that. I mean, you score 76 points and you hold Miami to just to just 50 points. Oshai Abaji had by far his best game of the tournament with 18 points on eight of 12 shooting from the field. And before that, like he wasn't averaging more than 10 points a game. So it, it was a bit of a shocker to see that Oshai Abaji was struggling because of how strong of a regular, regular season that he had. Mm. But to see him have that this type of a game against Miami is a huge confidence booster. You, you also take into account that McCormack had 15 points. He shot the ball very well, 6-7 from the field. Christian Braun added, added 12 points on 4-9 of nine shooting from the field. I think that this team is clicking at the right time. And I think you could say that with all four of these teams because this it, it was safe to say that earlier in the season, none of these teams were playing their best basketball. Mm. And the reason why all four of these teams are in the position where they're at now is because they're playing their best basketball at the right time when it matters most. Yeah. Now, Let's kind of go back to that Providence game because I think Kansas escaped Providence. Agreed. And you, you look at how the the team performed, only two double-digit scores. Jalen Wilson was 16 points in the starting lineup. He had double-double with 16 and 11. We waited for Remy, for Remy Martin to have this type of a game, mm. 23 points, 7 of 13 from the field. 8 of 13 from the line, did this while coming off the bench. I think that this was a strong win for Kansas, but there's been a trend in this tournament where they've been keeping it close with these Big East teams. Creighton, they only I think they only beat Creighton by 7 points. They beat Providence by 5 points. I expect another close game against Villanova regardless of of Justin Moore being out. Hmm. But I think you can't, I, I think if anything, Kansas is a sleeping giant. I think that's, that's probably the best way that you can put it. Yeah. And I mean, just to kind of build upon what you said, like you mentioned earlier, the most recent game against Miami is where Abaji kind of came alive a little bit, but even then Osha has not, uh, has not reached or eclipsed 20 points at all during this entire tournament. You go back to that Providence game. He's held the five points in that game against the Friars, right? And then you go to Remy Martin, who you mentioned. We were we were waiting for him to get hot, and he showed up big in that Providence game. And before the Miami game, he was actually getting hotter from the beginning of the tournament up until recently. 15 points against Texas Southern. Bumps that up to 20 points against Creighton. And then, of course, leads the team with 23 points in that win over Providence before, I think, being held to single digits against Miami. So. I agree with you. I think the most interesting part about Kansas is that they've done this without their best player having a real tournament-defining performance yet. And I don't know if that means that Oshai is saving his best for last, so to speak, but I do think that that's a really intriguing point to focus on. Another guy that it does need to get love, and you mentioned him in passing, so I want to give him his props, is Jalen Wilson, right? He's been a model of consistency for them throughout this entire postseason. On the boards, he's had... Um, at least um, three double-digit – in four games, he's had three double-digit rebounding games in those last three games, and he's had double-doubles in two of the last three games played. So he's been really effective on the glass for them, 
inside. I want to read something from Josh Planos of 538 about this Kansas Jayhawks team really quick that I think kind of summarizes my sleeping giant point. He says, expectation doesn't ring as loudly as surprise. Kansas, the lone number one seed left standing, had the second best odds of any team to reach this point, according to 538 pre-tournament, uh, to the 538 pre-tournament model. So it is that the favorite to cut the down, cut down the nets is the fourth most talked about team entering the final four. We mentioned that earlier as them being kind of the team that nobody's really discussing at the moment, despite probably being the second second best team remaining in terms of odds to win the championship. Or as ESPN's Myron Metcalf succinctly put it, perhaps the least sexy storyline left. Kansas has been so dominant on the hardwood for so long that the Jayhawks, Jayhawks became the winningest college basketball team of all time during the tournament. And it resulted in a in little more than a tweet, a Twitter bio edit, and it wasn't even Kansas's. So literally, they made history throughout this tournament, and nobody was talking about it. Because you have the Coach K farewell tour. You have Hubert Davis making the Final Four in his first season. You have Villanova and Jay Wright. And then there's Kansas, right? And I think that, that sleeping giant mentality is something that I think that if they come out aggressively against Villanova, who I think they are significantly favored to, to beat, I think we think it's going to be a close game, and I think most should expect it to be a close game, but I think we also probably are going to lean Kansas when we get to our picks. I think it's going to be more about the way Kansas gets it done rather than the victory itself that really wakes people up on them as the team that could come out of this year with the championship. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about Kansas before we move on to our final four previews and make our picks? I think I'll make this point with, with Kansas real quick. And then we get transition into that matchup with the, with the final four offensively, they have to prove that they're the better offensive team against Villanova because mm. Villanova only scored 50 points in their last game. Mm. And I think even though it's going to be, even though it's going to be a close game, I think ultimately Kansas will find a way to get this win. I think that's a fair point. I think that's, I think the biggest thing is that it's going to be, I think it's going to be scrappy, but I think, Kansas is a team that really is going to want to assert themselves coming out of this game because I think <laughs> there's a little bit of bias here. I got to be honest, but I think whoever comes out of the Duke, the Duke versus UNC game is going to win the championship, bro. I think it literally looking back, like how we said, whoever won the, the, the seven game series between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets, the two teams that we argued were probably the were arguably the best teams in the playoffs left at that time. Whoever won that series was going to win the championship. Milwaukee won that series, even if it was by the skin of their teeth. They won that series and it in turn went on to win the championship. I don't know if the logic necessarily applies, considering it's a one game scenario as opposed to a seven game series. But I just have the confidence that whatever team comes out of that is going to be the winner. But if Kansas wins in a significantly convincing fashion over Villanova that could bring cause to pause. But let's go ahead and move to the previews for the Final Four, and let's just start with that Kansas versus Villanova matchup then. 
Some of the opening storylines, we've mentioned a lot of them earlier. Justin Moore is out with a torn Achilles for Villanova. Osha Agbaji has not had a noteworthy game, really, this entire tournament. What is one X factor that you are going to keep your eye out on in this matchup, whether it's a player, a, sp- a particular stat you feel like one team needs to win in order to actually come out with the victory in this game, a a potential just just a potential storyline that you think needs to be factored in um, that we haven't already discussed that could play a big role in who wins this game. So you look at Villanova, great team on both sides of the floor, best free throw shooting team in the country, and then Kansas, another great offensive team, and I think Oshai Abaji is just getting started in the NCAA tournament. I think he's due for a big game against Villanova. I think the X factor in this game, for me, it's Caleb Daniels. The big thing we have to see is how he's going to take over for Justin Moore. He's been primarily coming off the bench this season, and now Jay Wright's going to have to look at other guys that come off the bench. Look at Chris Archidiakono as somebody that could get big minutes for them coming off the bench. And we haven't seen Villanova really extend their rotation beyond six players. So does Jay Wright extend his bench in this game? I think that's going to be a question that that I think we'll see um, with this game. With that being said, I'm taking Kansas. I think the loss of Justin Moore is going to hurt Villanova in this game. Oshai Obaji, I like I mentioned, I think Oshai Obaji is due for a big game. I think the big thing that we're going to have to also see from Kansas is can Remy Martin have the type of game that he had? Can Remy Martin play the type of game that he played against Providence in the Sweet 16? Because I think they're going to need somebody who can come off the bench and be the spark plug that can help turn the tide for things when the starting five when the starting five isn't getting it done. So I think the big thing, Remy Martin's going to need to be that offensive spark plug. So the X factor for me is going to be Ojai Obaji versus Colin Gillespie on the floor, pound for pound. They're the two floor generals for the both teams. They're the two best players on the floor, arguably from a, from a production standpoint and from a talent standpoint. And these are two of the bigger name players for both teams on the biggest stage or one of the biggest stages in college basketball. So my question is really who is going to show up when the lights are brightest. Another thing that I think is going to be really important. um, And I I guess you could argue this might even just be more of an X factor than their actual individual matchup is there's been reports that Brian Antoine is going to get a lot of the time filled in for Justin Moore being out of the rotation. I do think that the play of Brian Antoine and Brandon Slater, for that matter, are going to be really important. Antoine, in particular, he averages not he averaged nine point five minutes and one point four points in only nineteen games played so far throughout this season. And we know that the tourney makes superstars out of guys. And I think that this could be the perfect opportunity under these circumstances as the unlikely hero, so to speak, to come off the bench and make a name for himself in this Villanova program as a guy who plays hero, so to speak, with some, maybe even if it's not from an offensive standpoint, maybe even with some big 
defensive possessions or even with a hustle play that stands out that leads to an offensive possession that is game-changing in this matchup. I would watch out for Antoine as a guy who could really end up making an impact in a game that obviously matters a ton in a circumstance where his name is being called upon for to fill the role of some big shoes and a guy like Justin Moore, who I think honestly is going to be a legit, you know, NBA prospect uh, talent um, going into the summer, regardless of the fact that he's coming in with, uh, with injury. Um, so that would be my main thing. And then in terms of whoever the team I'm picking, like you mentioned before, and I got to go with Kansas too. I, I genuinely think that Villanova just has a lot more to overcome just by losing Justin Moore. And beyond that, I also think that Kansas needs a statement victory over Villanova to really kind of wake people up on just how big of a threat they are as a championship favorite going into the finals. So that would be my main reasoning. Um, and of course, we had to save the best for last, right? Had to, no doubt. Let's talk about Duke versus North Carolina. This is, as we mentioned beforehand, the biggest storylines are for this game are Hubert Davis making his first Final Four as opposed to Coach K making his last Final Four, we presume, uh, with, the, with, all the, with all the farewell tour stuff going on. This is also the first time these two programs have ever met in the Final Four in the history of this rivalry, which sounds insane considering both teams have been so dominant throughout NCAA basketball history for so long. And of course, there's the backdrop that is the battle of two ACC teams. So you already know there's some smoke to have that, uh, behind that as it is, as if it wasn't already a big enough rivalry without throwing that in there. So what would you say is your big X factor in this game? Because there's a lot of talented players in this, in this, in this matchup. So individually or just from a team perspective, I think there's a lot of ways you can go. Yeah, like I said earlier, I think this is the first ride against uh, versus the final ride, and definitely the first of many Final Four appearances for Hubert Davis at North Carolina. The storylines there for coach for Coach K to win it all this year. Um, I think what will be really interesting this is to see which team can shoot the ball more efficient from three. These two teams are coming into this game shooting um, thirty six and. Uh, over 36.5% from three, a couple of 40% three-point shooters as well on Duke and North Carolina. So I think that's going to be something to watch out for. This will definitely be a, be a close game that comes down to the wire. I think an X factor in this game, I think it's Mark Williams for Duke. He has a ton of potential right now. He's averaging 11 and five. He's a, He has a couple of uh, three block games this season. Um, I think the one thing that could be really interesting is how he matches up with Armando Baycott down low. Armando Baycott has the potential to be a 20 and 20 guy. And we just saw him put up 22 rebounds against St. Peter's. I think this will be a very tough matchup for Mark Williams. So I'm interested to see how he will hold up in this type of a matchup. And especially with the stakes, like I said earlier, final four, um, first time that North Carolina and Duke are meeting in the final four and how fitting is it that it's coach K's last year at Duke. Um, with that being said, I'm sticking with Duke. And I think the big thing that we have to watch out for as well. Um, another big thing to watch out for as well. 
the draft stocks of a lot of these players. Paulo Bancaro can solidify himself as the number one overall pick if he if he shows out in these if he has a great game in these next two games. I think you know somebody like AJ Griffin he could solidify himself as a projected lottery pick. I think somebody like Mark Williams could elevate his draft stock as well. Brady Manick um, on the other side, Brady Manick, Armando Baycott, RJ Davis. These are guys that can, that can elevate their draft stock if they have a great game in this setting, in this rivalry. So I think that's huge. I want to kind of further build upon what you mean when you say this setting in this rivalry specifically, Hunter felt wrote something for the guardian that I want to read just that kind of really, emphasizes the magnitude of this game beyond some of the things we've already said, which sounds insane that it can actually be bigger than some of the stuff we've listed, but it, but it actually does. He says on Saturday, Mike Krzyzewski, Krzyzewski's Duke uh, will face the university of North Carolina in the NCAA men's tournament for both the first and the last time. It sounds improbable, but it's taken until the final season of coach K's illustrious career for these two bitter rivals to face each other on college basketball's biggest stage. It doesn't feel that way because the two schools separated by a mere 10 miles have played each other 257 times with every game treated as an epic clash between two giants. Duke, North Carolina has been called the biggest rivalry in college sports and has a genuine claim to being one of the most storied in all of U.S. sports. The accompanying hype can become quite overwhelming, particularly when the athletes who decide it are largely unpaid teenagers. Much of the hype comes down to the blunt factor that most of the country hates the Duke black basketball program. It doesn't matter that the Tar Heels lead their all-time series with the Blue Devils 142-115. to Duke are traditionally the villain in this particular matchup. Much of this is down to the perception that the rivalry boils down to a bunch of preppy snobs facing off against scrappy regular joes i'm gonna stop it there because i want that to be what leads me into my x factor i agree with you i think that armando baycott versus mark williams is going to be one of the bigger things in this matchup because i think the physicality establishment is going to be really important as mentioned in this piece talking about the idea of preppy snob versus scrappy regular guys i don't i think duke has elevated themselves a little bit beyond being preppy preppy guys in terms of building their basketball team, so to speak. But one thing that does stand is I think that this matchup is going to be scrappy. I do think that this game is going to be chippy in the backdrop of knowing that each team won a game at the opposing team's home floor. And now we sit here on a neutral site with probably every notable North Carolina player you could think of in attendance prop to some extent. Every notable Duke player you could think of notably in attendance in this in this case under the backdrop of the final four, it's going to get chippy. It's going to be aggressive and it's going to be a punch in the mouth. How do you respond kind of game? And I think that those two guys inside with the fact that they have so much influence on controlling the paint, big time blocks and things of that nature, I think. Whichever one of these teams punches first isn't the team who wins. I think it's the team who responds to the chippiness and responds accordingly, responds through it, and is unfazed by it is the team that will win this game. The team with the most resolve will win this matchup because at the end of the day, 
from a talent to talent perspective, yes, I would argue Duke outmatches UNC, but there is a lot of talent overall on this floor in this game on both ends. The difference in this game is going to be who plays beyond their talent and who shows up big with the lights bright beyond just the mere fact that they're noted as a 15-plus point-per-game scorer. What do you do when clutch bucket time comes? How do you perform when things start to get tight and the game is still close? With a magnitude of this kind of game, I think the outside factor things, the what you have in your heart factor is going to have much more to do with the talent you have on the floor. With that being the case, I'm leaning with UNC, not just because I'm a North Carolina guy, but because I think that Duke has the talent, but I think our team has the heart along with the fact that we are still a talented ball club. I think that this is a team in UNC that is destined to be able to make this run and I think they're going to get the job done. I got a little bit of bias behind it. I'm not hiding it. But at the same time, I think that this is a UNC squad that's going to be able to keep it close and in the end, get it done. I think that's going to be huge um, for this team. And I think either way, no matter what, I said it earlier. And i got to make sure to clip this. So I'm saying this in the pod just to make sure that I make sure to get this. Whoever wins between the Duke Blue Devils and the North Carolina Tar Heels will win the championship. That is my utmost belief because I think that this back, the backdrop of this game has so much weight on it that whoever comes out victorious of this is beyond capable of winning one more game to host up the trophy. And so with that being the case, I think this game has even bigger implications than just the one we see within the individual rivalry. That's all I got left, man. If North Carolina were to win against Duke and reach the national championship as an eight seed, they're not the first team to do it. They're not the first team to be an eight seed and reach the national championship. I think it'll be even bigger if they're an eight seed and they win the national championship. But this team has the talent that they can do it. I'm just wondering if that inside-out matchup with Mark Williams and Armando Armando Baycott defines who wins this game. If that, if Armando Baycott wins that matchup, does it define if does it is that the 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 pendulum swing in favor of North Carolina? If Mark Williams wins that inside matchup, is that the pendulum swing for Duke to win? Or is there another factor? So as you guys heard, the Hoop Talk podcast has came to a collective agreement that we have Kansas in the finals, in the championship. Where we disagree is Ryan has Duke going to the championship as opposed to me, who has UNC going to the championship. I'm going to pass it to Ryan to get us up out of here with the question of the day. I want to leave you guys with this real quick before I pass it over. And it's just that, guys, this has been a crazy NCAA season. And somehow we are still not devoid of such epic storylines, right? We are in the final four. We have four basically blue blood programs here. And yet, even though the expectation that seeing blue bloods in the final four has almost become routine, we still have these storylines 
that continue to keep the NCAA game strong this late into the tournament. I think that's so great. But Ryan, pass it over to you to get somebody here. Transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, which team do you think will win the national championship? Do you think it'll be Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, or Villanova? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.